I'm going to get started. So it's my pleasure, uh, our pleasure to have Gina Stano here. Um, she's been a longtime affiliate uh, friend of GES over, over the years. Uh, I know she's given at least one other colloquium uh, in the GES Center um, before. Uh, and uh, so she is a William Niels Reynolds uh, Distinguished Professor in the Department of Entomology and Plant Pathology. Um, she works on plant diseases. Um, so she's done a lot of work on potato blight uh, and a number of other high-profile plant diseases all over the world. Um, she's been a science advisor to USAID, um, and uh, her work has appeared uh, all over the place. And it, I'm really looking forward to hearing what she has to say uh, for today's colloquium. Okay. Thanks, everyone, for joining in on this uh, Zoom colloquium. And we just had a Zoom attack, but hopefully we're through that. <laughs> this afternoon I'm going to talk to you about some of the work I'm doing on uh, tackling the global challenges of emerging plant diseases. We know that human population growth uh, is expected to exceed 8 to 10 billion by 2050. And with that increase in population growth, there are many challenges, including feeding smallholder farmers globally. We have hunger issues, about 800 million people, or one in nine are food insecure globally, according to FAO statistics, and about 2 billion suffer micronutrient deficiencies. Poor nutrition is responsible for stunning in children. About one in four globally, children globally are stunted. And we have um, poor nutrition as a cause of that stunning. Those first thousand days impact uh, the entire life of a child if they don't have proper nutrition early on. So we know we have to increase food production to uh, feed hung the hungry in the world. And we also need to be able to protect ecosystem services, reduce the environmental footprint of agriculture, water demands, energy demands, and then continue to manage the distribution of food, including food waste. In fact, this past year, FAO indicated that food waste globally is responsible for significant losses in, in, in food usage. So uh, reducing food waste is very important. We've all dealt with climate-related disasters in recent years. This is a slide showing Hurricane Dorian in the upper right-hand corner. And you, you, we've seen increases in storms and flooding, and then in some areas of the world, droughts and extreme temperatures and fire. Uh, I recently returned from a trip to Australia where the center of the country is experiencing extreme temperatures and droughts, and then the fire damage has devastated ecosystems. And all of these climate-related disasters affect food production. The other thing that affects food production is uh, uh, the uh, instability and the political climate of countries. This is a, a figure that came out of a IFPRI report back in 2011, and it's showing the, uh, the rise in um, food riots related to uh, food price spikes. This is food price spikes on the y-axis and different countries and parts of Africa and the Middle East that saw food price spikes and associated violence. And in fact, in 2014, John Kerry, then Secretary of State, said the lack of access to food leads to not only malnutrition and instability, but even violence. And development assistance by agencies such as USAID and World Food Program have have led to um, stability in many areas, and it's less expensive than defense responses. So in 2017, the G7 summit met in Sicily. This is a slide showing Terramina, Mount Etna off in the distance. And basically, when they met, they talked about conflict and how it impacts food security. About 93 million people suffer from food insecurity due to conflict and migration. Uh, case in point, the Syrian refugees that are now uh, out of Syria and in, in Turkey and various areas in refugee camps, they don't have lack of, they have lack of access to food and now lack of access to medical needs uh, with this pan COVID-19 pandemic. And what's happened is um, the migra migration of men out of Sub-Saharan Africa has led to a feminization of agriculture. There are more women working as smallholder farmers. And uh, so it's providing more opportunities for some of these smallholders, but it's also leading to uh, change, social changes and displacement. In order to match our projected increase in food demand by 2050, we have to increase food production by about 60%. 
And so we have to increase that production and, and also reduce food waste. These are post-harvest rots shown on these fruits and vegetables. Reducing uh, pathogens that cause post-harvest diseases can increase the um, utilization of food. And we're all living now with the COVID-19 outbreak. I've added this slide in to just talk about there's a concern about food safety and, and virus human disease outbreaks. Um, this is not a plant virus. It's a human virus. However, um, it's interesting this virus made a shift from bats into humans. There are other examples where uh, uh, human pathogens have migrated from mammals. And some of these bats were actually consumed as food in China. So what we consume, what we eat, where we eat it, and uh, what pathogens are in the food we consume can impact global pandemics. This slide, I took this image from uh, a paper that was published in PLOS Pathogens just showing host shifts are common in viruses and that infection success in various viruses can be related to um, certain clades of, of hosts. So a closely related sister lineage, the virus might move into that lineage and, and cause outbreaks. But then also sometimes viruses can jump to completely different hosts or shift. So we need to be aware of what we eat, the one health concept of the convergence of human, plant, and, and, uh, uh, pathogen, and human, uh, animal, and pathogen, um, plant pathogen, uh, pet, pests and pathogens. And there's a need for uh, improved surveillance and diagnostics. This diagram I pulled from FAO, it's the uh, slide on the future of food and agriculture. And it lists all these issues that I've talked about, hunger, migration, food waste, building resilience to disasters and conflicts. But number nine talks about transboundary and emerging pests and pathogens in agriculture. And that's where our team of faculty that work in the cluster on emerging plant disease are, are working at. We're working on this boundary area of transboundary pests and pathogens that cause disease and affect our food supply. We know emerging pests and pathogens are on the increase uh, in North America, more have been reported than in other continents, but on all continents, we see this potential for more emerging pests and pathogens. So what are the characteristics of emerging plant diseases? Well, they could be caused by a pathogen that may have increased in host range or incidence, or it might be a newly evolved pathogen that has not been discovered previously or newly recognized, or it might be a pathogen that has jumped host and moved into a new host and causes pathogenesis in that new host. So all these characteristics of microbes affect how they emerge to cause epidemics. There are many drivers of plant disease epidemics, including the global trade and movement of plant material. Plant material that, that harbors pathogens and pests moves globally in our uh, freight, freight and, and, and in, uh, in the maritime trade or in trade of plants or just in movement of plant material within a country. So trade is very important. Also, I mentioned climate change. It's affecting the distribution of vectors and pathogens. It, these increase in frequency of unusual weather events, like flooding events, can predispose plants to soil-borne pathogens. Drought stress might predispose plants to aflatoxins. Milder winters might allow pathogens to survive in an area they hadn't uh, been able to survive before. And then we are seeing an increase in crop production in developing countries in non-traditional crops that they haven't grown before in that area. So when you introduce a new crop, it's in an environment where it hasn't been grown before and it might encounter pests and pathogens that it didn't encounter in its native rangeland. And we also have the issue of 40% of our food crops being uh, four stable crops and monoculture of many of those crops. So this loss of genetic diversity in our food system is impacting outbreaks and when they occur and how frequently they occur. And then as I mentioned with the virus example, just from COVID-19, we have viruses that are shifting hosts and jumping into new hosts or hybridization of new fungal species that cause problems for plant disease epidemics as well. I want to give you a few examples of emerging pests and pathogen or emerging plant diseases, and then I'll focus on lake life, the system that I work on. So cassava viruses are an example of a virus disease that's kind of new to Africa. When cassava was introduced into Africa from South America, 
it became an accidental host for cassava mosaic virus, and it can cause about $60 million in losses. Um, cassava viruses reduce the production of the cassava um, storage route itself and also reduce the livelihood of smallholders. Aflatoxins in corn and peanut are a serious problem caused by this fungus aspergillus, shown, the image shown on corn here, but this is a peanut kernel covered with aspergillus. And essentially, um, studies have been done in the, the seed mills in Africa showing that the, the levels of aflatoxin in some of those mills is considerably higher than the legal limit, and this can lead to cancer, stunting in children, and just uh, human health impacts from a plant disease. Um, so it's a serious problem in Africa. And then we have new virulent races of pathogens. The stem rust pathogen, Puccinia graminis, UG99, emerged in Uganda in 1999, and this was a race of the pathogen that could overcome all the work of the Green Revolution. Essentially, many of the wheat varieties that were grown, studied by Borlaug, and planted globally are susceptible to this new race. So this led to Simmon and other uh, in, uh, research universities, including Dave Marshall here at NC State, working diligently to breed new wheat and plant that wheat and deploy it ahead of the wave of introduction of this new race of the pathogen. Uh, there's a, a biosurveillance system called Rust Tracker that was funded by the Gates Foundation, and this system allows you to monitor where stem rust is, but we're continuing, continuing to see new races of stem rust. In fact, 2016, a new race occurred in Sicily, and, you know, this deadly new wheat disease that threatens the European crops was discussed in nature. So continue to have to monitor new races of pathogens and breed for resistance. Coffee rust is another example. When I was at USAID in 2012 to 2013, I took this photograph in Guatemala showing a coffee leaf covered with rust. The lesions were huge, bigger than I'd ever seen previously in my trips into Central America, and the rust defoliated the plantation. There was a lack of resistant varieties, more disease at high altitudes, and these smallholder growers really did not have access to fungicides. They'd never had to deal with the disease at high altitudes. And so they, there were tremendous losses. And in fact, some suggest, there was a Washington Post article last year suggesting that, that the coffee rust outbreaks were responsible for the migration of many people from Honduras, El Salvador, and, and Guatemala into the U.S. because of the lack of livelihoods, because of no coffee to, to manage. I work on black cigatoca on bananas. This is myself and a couple folks from uh, Dole, former NC State graduate, and uh, Miguel Munez. Uh, we've seen cigatoca uh, for many years in banana in Central America, and in fact, the, the companies have to spray 70 fungicide applications just to manage this disease. And most of the Cavendish variety is susceptible, and so it's constantly new fungicides being deployed to try and manage the outbreaks. This disease was accidentally introduced by a plant breeder working for United Fruit back in the 1970s. So the introduction of this pathogen caused widespread um, fungicide use in the, in the industry. And now we're dealing with Panama disease. Tropical race 4 is um, uh, emerged in Southeast Asia, and there are several races, but the race shown here in red in this map emerged in this area of Southeast Asia. It's in China. It's in in uh, Australia, it showed up in uh, Mozambique in 2011-2012, and then into the Middle East in Jordan, and then just last summer it was reported in Colombia, and it was in organic banana plantations. The growers had brought in plants from the Middle East, and they suspect that the disease was there for several years before it was reported. Panama disease, unlike Sigatoka, you can't manage it with fungicides. You pretty much have to quarantine the plantation, destroy the plants with herbicides, and prevent access. Fences are being built around banana fields. And in Central America right now, where most of the dole and the big companies are growing bananas, this disease is not present, but it's, it's a concern that it might enter. So they're putting into place biosecurity and. Uh, 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 standards, they're fencing off the plantations, using sanitization, 
They're sanitizing shoes, equipment to prevent this soil-borne fungus from entering. And the variety that's grown now is susceptible. So I work on the pathogen that caused the potato famine and threatened food security in the 19th century in Ireland. This is a painting by David McDonald showing his family uncovering the potato tubers. These were the main source of food. When the potato crop died, the, the family uh, was food insecure. Many perished, two million died and another million immigrated. This is a picture of a monument I took at Harvard Square in, in Boston. Never again should a people starve in a world of plenty. I wish that was true, but there are certainly many areas of the world where people go hungry because of all these issues that I just described. So late blight is not just of historic interest. It causes disease globally on potatoes, and we consider it a re-emerging plant disease. This is a smallholder grower from Honduras who I photographed. He has lack of access to fungicides, and when the disease hits, he pretty much can just salvage what he can harvest, uh, but without resistance or fungicides, there's a problem for smallholders. So in the U.S., we spray lots of fungicides to control late blight. We have a whole series of fungicides, but we have some fungicide resistance among some of the lineages. This pathogen moves in potato tubers, tomato fruit, but it also has airborne inoculum, and it has a rapid life cycle. Within three days, it can produce spores that reproduce on the plant. And we know it can shift hosts into tomatoes, potatoes, wild selenums, and exploit new niches. And we sequenced the genome a few years back. There are many effectors in the genome that allow this pathogen to overcome host R gene-based resistance. And even though the disease has been causing problems for 175 years, we still grow susceptible potatoes globally because of the agronomic traits of those varieties. Russet Burbank is popular for fries and fast food uh, production. So that variety has grown pretty widely, and most varieties of potatoes are susceptible to late blight. These are slides just showing what the symptoms look like on the potato tubers, lesions on the leaves and on tomatoes. It causes disease on the stem and on the fruit. The sporangia can, is airborne. They, the sporangia are airborne. They travel hundreds of kilometers, and they produce copious amounts on the leaf lesion. You might find hundreds of thousands of sporangia on one lesion. So a single introduction in a field can spread, and within three to five days, if the field is not treated with fungicides, the, the crop will be lost. So in 20, uh, 2009, the company Bonnie Plants that produces these tomato transplants that many of you may grow in your home gardens had late blight uh, in their transplants. And these transplants were sent to about 60 different locations in the Northeast, and the climate was very rainy conducive for disease, and the tomato transplants grown in home gardens, the pathogen jumped into tomato and potato fields and caused a major pandemic of late blight. And in fact, it was, it was reported in the New York Times and Science News about this outbreak of this fungus, which is it's actually a fungus-like organism that caused disease. And it was due to a single source introduction from this one company, but plants that were infected going to lots of places with trade. And to, up until this time, we really hadn't been aware of tomato transplants as a source of this disease. So what happened in 2009, people generally search for blight, what's blighting my tomatoes every summer, but in 2009 we saw this peak in disease searches on Google, and late blight and tomato blight were the search terms in this period from June until August and September. So people started texting, messaging, social networking. The research scientists started looking into sampling, isolating, genotyping. But we had a full-blown full epidemic in 2009. If we'd had uh, indication early on before the epidemic escalated by monitoring and surveillance, we could have prevented the pandemic. But unfortunately, that was not the case. There were tremendous losses in, in that particular year. We actually are doing some data mining projects now, and we use Google Ngram searches to search for the term potato disease and late blight in, in all of the literature. And we can actually capture through Google Ngram searches the peak in um, late blight in the 1840s and another peak later in the 1870s when we know epidemics were severe globally. So data mining is a very useful tool for biosurveillance. So as a result of that, 
2009 outbreak. A team of us put a, a large grant together. Uh, Howard Jettleson was our lead. We developed a USA Blight Disease Reporting and Disease Alert System. Uh, myself, Bill Fry, and Nick Grunwald were sequencing and genotyping the pathogen, and the data is um, imported into a USA Blight portal. We have management tools and information for growers to mitigate disease. And the goal was to reduce fungicide application by improving timing of when sprays are applied. This is what the web portal looks like, USA Blight's uh, web portal. We have information. The outbreak maps are the most frequently uh, searched part of the portal, but we also have management uh, information, how to identify genotypes. You can submit a sample and quickly, within a matter of days, get a genotype. So the USA by portal, there's sample submission, so a grower might have disease, sends in a sample, the sample is ID'd, and we a genotype at Cornell University using 12-plex microsats. We also have these maps showing at the county level where the outbreaks are occurring. And then we have a decision support tool, it's called Blight Pro, that was developed at Cornell that allows growers to use weather data, temperature, relative humidity, and rainfall, and, the, and, and predicts when to spray. When the blight units are in the red here, as shown in this figure, it signals a spray event is needed. So this is a map just from 2017 showing disease outbreaks on the county level. Usually we see disease in Florida, and then it migrates northward, and then you'll, we'll see many more outbreaks in the northeast where the temperature is more conducive for disease. We've genotyped for many years, and this figure shows from 2009 to 2018, this purple genotype shown here is the US 22 genotype. It was high on tomatoes in 2009, 10, 11, then decreased, very not less frequent on potatoes, but we now see this blue genotype, or the US 23 genotype, has displaced the previous genotypes, and pretty much is the dominant genotype now on both tomato and potato although we do see a little bit of US-8. These genotypes are, are named based on the 12-plex microsat loci that we're using. And why is it important to genotype? Well, genotype, if we know the genotype, we know something about the fungicide sensitivity. US-8 and 11 are resistant to the fungicide mephanoxum and grow at very high parts per million on that fungicide. But the other genotypes, including the predominant US-23 that's found globally and mostly now in the US, they're sensitive. And we've also tested sensitivity to a number of other fungicides, and we have widespread sensitivity to these other fungicides, which is a good thing. So the shift to the US-23 has meant a shift to methanoxum uh, sensi uh, sensitive isolates. So I want to get back to this concept of disease surveillance, since uh, it's in the news now for COVID-19. Disease surveillance is really important, so it allows you to determine whether an organism is sensitive or resistant to a various to a, a treatment such as a fungicide, but um, oftentimes, when, once epidemics have occurred, it's too late to deploy the mitigation strategy. With plant diseases, we have some that are polycyclic, like late blight, and some that are monocyclic, some soil-borne pathogens. If you can determine that the pathogens in the area through surveillance and mapping, you might be able to delay the onset of disease, or you might be able to slow the rate of disease progress, or really reduce the final incidence. So you've all seen a lot of disease progress curves recently in the news on COVID-19. These same sorts of principles apply to plant disease epidemiology. If you have a mitigation strategy, if you can apply a fungicide or another, or another management strategy to reduce the outbreak, you can delay it and uh, reduce the economic impact to growers. So the other thing I kind of want to back up here, we're working on sensor development as part of our work with our cluster faculty, and we want to be working in this pre-epidemic event space so that we can really prevent escalation to a full-blown pandemic. So if you can introduce sensors and detection methods early on in an epidemic, you can lower the total incidence of disease. So our lab's been working on lamp assays, or they're isothermal assays that can be used to detect path, uh, pathogens. We've developed a lamp assay for Phytophthora infestans using CyberGreen. We've also labeled the lamp primers with uh, um, 
various markers that allow us to run the uh, product, the Amplicon, into a lateral flow device where we can detect. And we're also using uh, mobile uh, I, uh, IT detection methods using tablets and then also smartphones that I'm going to talk about in a bit. As part of our Emerging Plant Disease and Global Food Security cluster, we hired Kishan Wei back uh, a few years ago. And Kishan's a uh, chemist and an engineer. He's in chemical and biomolecular engineering. And the work that we're doing with Kishan is game-changing. We're, we're actually developing sensors that will detect volatiles in plants to indicate whether they're infected. And then we're also using microneedle patch technology to detect pathogens. I wanted to talk a bit, a bit about what the microneedle patch technology looks like. Generally, when you extract DNA, you go through a whole series of beta extractions. It can take hours, even with kits. Our microneedle patches are these uh, nanoscale microneedles. They're in a grid about the size of a postage stamp. You press them into the plant or the lesion, and then you just rinse the DNA or the RNA off the patch, and you can extract the DNA. We've demonstrated that the microneedle patch works for plant pathogens, fungal, and oomycetes. And recently, our graduate student, Rajesh Paul, has documented that it works for viruses, including RNA viruses, like tomato spotted wilt virus. So the microneedles, basically, you, you press it into the lesion. The pathogen and the host DNA is on, or RNA is on those microneedles. And then the post-processing with the lamp assay or RT-PCR or PCR allows you to identify the pathogen of interest. And we've actually developed some cartridges now, lyophilized the lamp reagents, and we can, or we can take pieces of this patch, place it directly into a PCR tube or a lamp tube, and run um, the diagnostic in the field. So we're scaling this up for several different plant pathogens. This just shows we can detect plant genes, we can detect pathogen genes. And, and, and the extraction method is about a minute. So this method could be really used to streamline genotyping for plant breeding, for, for all sorts of applications, for sequencing. And so we're pursuing some of that research now and some other projects we're working on with um, a couple of companies. So the other aspect we're working on is volatile organic compound analysis. When plants are infected by pathogens or insects or even wounded by predators or, or um, pests, they release volatiles. And some of these are defense compounds. Some of, them might, some of them might be attractants or repellents. But what we're figuring out is how to read those volatile profiles and determine uh, and identify pathogens based on the volatile profiles. We found that with Phytophthorin festans, there was a report showing 2-hexanol was produced in response to infection by Phytophthora infestans on tomatoes. So um, Zheng Li, a postdoc of Qishan's, worked on uh, developing a sensor that um, is a colorimetric sensor. Use, it uses gold nanoparticles, and it can detect these 10 different volatiles that are released in response to infection with Phytophthora infestans. And we've looked at the sensitivity of the sensors to different concentrations of the volatiles. Um, and basically, the way it works, we inoculate a tomato. After two days, we uh, detect the headspace gas by pumping that gas into a chamber connected to a smartphone. And then the, the, uh, a paper slide that has the, the nanoparticle sensors uh, detects all these different um, volatiles. Uh, it reacts over time. And within two days, we can start seeing volatile release uh, from the tomato leaf. And different volatiles are released. This is a healthy leaf. This is Phytophthora infestans. This is a fungus alternaria and another pathogen, septoria. So we get different volatile profiles by different pathogens and by changes in colors of the sensors or reaction of different, different um, volatile detection sensors on the paper sensor, we can sort out the three different pathogens. And this is shown here, uh, uh, a um, principal components analysis showing the detection. And this is within two days after inoculation before symptoms. Usually plant diagnosticians detect and identify based on symptoms. We're detecting based on the volatiles being released from the plant. We published this last year in, in Nature Plants. So we're, we just had a plant uh, 
science grant funded and our team is now scaling up to develop a plant a database where we want to test our sensors on tomatoes for fungal bacterial virus pathogens and mixed and single infections we want to deploy the sensors in the field with our collaborator Inga Meadows and in, in the field in Western North Carolina. We also are developing wearable sensors that will stay on the plant that allow to differentiate plant water stress from disease. And then we're training a database called Plant A Database. Rob Scheller and Dave Rasmussen are working on going to work on that, where we'll put this data, the sensor data, into the database and use AI uh, machine learning to identify what the profile patterns look like. And then also we're building phylogenies and trying to model the disease spread. And some of this modeling is being done in conjunction with Chris Jones and then economic modeling with Kelly um, Ziering. The, the model that we're using for disease spread is um, courtesy of Chris Jones and Ross Mintemeyer and Center for Geospatial Analytics, but it's a susceptible infected remove model. So say if we have a sensor that detects a number of infected plants in a field, we can then predict based on whether it's weather, precipitation, temperature, how far that disease might spread. And it's important to note that this one of these models, this SIR models, they're actually being used now to model the spread of COVID-19 globally. These models are used not only by plant disease epidemiologists, but by human epidemiologists that study human disease spread. And um, the models can be tweaked based on the temperature, weather parameters of your, of your pathogen of interest. And we're hoping to input some of our data collected with these sensors into the model. So the goal would be use a sensor, detect what the disease is, upload the data to a cloud computing source, and then using geospatial analytics to create maps of outbreaks and then also maps where hotspots are, which might indicate where Either a fungicide needs to be sprayed or a resistant variety needs to be deployed. So um, the other thing we, we're doing as part of our team is really starting to do more population genomics, pathogen population genomics. In the past, we've sequenced, uh, we've, we've used certain multi-locus sequencing of individual genes or mitochondrial genes, and we've also used 12-plex microsats. But in 2000 and Nine, a team of us um, funded by NSF and the Broad Institute published the first genome of Phytophthorin festans. It was featured on the cover of Nature, and we found the genome was huge. It was 256 megabases. That's a very large genome. And to keep that in perspective, this virus that's circulating now on humans is 10 kb. So the Phytophthora genome is 256 megabases. It's very large. We found that there is an area in the genome that uh, is transposon rich, and this is where effectors are found in the pathogen in this gene sparse region. And it has a very large expanded genome compared to some other Phytophthoras. So with that baseline data, we, uh, we have also been doing uh, sequencing from historic outbreaks of Phytophthora infestans. In 1845, late blight caused the Irish famine in the UK, and in 1843, it was present in the US. We have about 1,200 herbarium samples present globally uh, in different collections, and many were collected in the 19th century from the US, from Europe, and parts of Africa and Asia. So we've been using those historic outbreak samples to to study the evolution of Phytophthora infestans. We know what the present-day genome looks like. So the question is, what lineage caused the famine? Where did it come from? Has the pathogen genome always been large? It has, does the, the pathogen effector diversity, or these proteins that are responsible for overcoming host-resistant genes, are, are um, where, where historic samples, effector diversity is diverse as modern samples? Was the pathogen clonal or sexual? Are historic genotypes still circulating? And we are interested in studying the lineages on both sides of the pond. So we did. A, we started a collaborative project with Mike Martin and Tom Gilbert of the University of Copenhagen. Mike's now at University of uh, Northern uh, uh, Science and Technology University in Trondheim, Norway. And we sequenced five different genomes of historic late blight from the, the famine era. The T30 genome is the modern sequence genome that we did in 2009 with the Broad Institute, and USA 22 and 23 are 
are modern U.S. Genome type, genotypes that are circulating, and this is an aggressive lineage from Europe. We found a highly supported monophyletic clade for these historic genomes. The T30 um, genotype um, was intermediate between modern and historic. And we found about 120,000 SNPs that sorted historic from modern uh, genotypes. And even over this 40-year period, there were 12,000 SNPs that differentiated the pathogen from 1845 to, say, some, uh, the lineage in 1889. So it was evolving over time. Uh, this could, it could also mean that multiple lineages were introduced into Europe, but we know the lineage, the historic lineage was different than modern late blight. So we scaled up uh, with uh, our collections, historic collections. We sequenced the mitochondrial genomes, they're about 30 KB, and then the nuclear genomes of the famine era isolates, our modern US1 lineage, which was circulating mid 20th century in the US, some modern lineages from Mexico and some modern aggressive lineages from uh, globally and then from South America. And we found that the historic uh, lineage that caused the famine, this famine lineage, shared admixture with the species of Phytophthora that's only found in South America, in, in uh, Peru, uh, Ecuador, and Colombia, Phytophthora andina. And the mitochondrial genealogy also allowed us to indicate when this divergent of the mitochondrial lineage, the famine herb one mitochondrial lineage occurred. These are historic outbreak samples, and we found that occurred about 175 years prior to the potato famine. So this divergence most likely occurred in South America. We also found that the mitochondrial lineage uh, was not specific for Phytophthora infestans. We found it in Phytophthora andina as well. And um, this admixture with andina indicates most likely that the famine era lineage, um, lineage uh, share uh, ancestry with, with uh, lineages that occurred in, in South America. Our modern Mexican lineages are more recent, and then these most recent, these are more recent introductions of the South American Phytophthora lineages. So using population genomics, we're kind of reassessing the origin of Phytophthora infestans and also its relationship to sister species. I mentioned the pathogen genome when it was sequenced, there was a large area of the genome that had pathogen effectors. These, these, uh, these are proteins that are necessary, uh, virulence proteins, and when a host resistance gene is present in the potato, you don't see disease. When it's absent, you do see disease. And about 20 AVR genes have been cloned and sequenced, and they're recogni they recognize host potato R genes. So we had those sequences, so we went back through the historic data, and we found that the effectors were deleted in gene-sparse regions, in his, in, they were not present in, in um, gene-sparse regions of the historic genomes. In fact, most of the avirulence genes that we consider important for pathogenesis today were not there in historic late blight, and the virulent form of these particular two genes, AVR2 and 3A, were absent in historic samples. This, these are some of the effectors. This is a sequencing coverage distribution across the RXLR effectors. This is the T30 genome. These are some modern genomes. And then the inner circles are the historic genomes. So what we've seen is that over time and space, this pathogen's effector diversity has increased and allowed it to overcome uh, host resistance genes. So probably um, it's, it's evolved in response to uh, breeding resistant potatoes. We've also used 12-plex microsat uh, genotyping using uh, SSRs to scale, scan through many more historic outbreak samples. These small blue dots indicate 19th century late blight in the U.S. and Europe, and we identified that lineage as the FAM1 microsat lineage. We found the same lineage on both sides of the pond. It's shown here. This is the structure analysis. And we found that this US1 lineage, which is a different mitochondrial haplotype, um, was present later in our collections. And we also found that the, the FAM1 lineage was present in Colombia and Costa Rica and some of our oldest samples. So we still we see that lineage uh, in modern 20th century um, samples of potatoes. So this led us to start scanning more samples, do more 
microsat genotyping and we're working on a paper right now but we've actually shown that this famine lineage was not just contained in Europe and the US but it spread globally it spread into East Africa it spread into India China the first outbreaks in Australia were caused by the famine lineage these red dots indicate British colonization routes and most likely this lineage spread from the British Isles into other places in the world through the movement of infected sea potatoes. And there, were, there was colonization of some of these areas, not only by the British, by, by, by the French. And we see, we see uh, potatoes were used as ship stores. They were food source for sailors, and they were also planted. And the famine lineage did not go extinct, and it's, it actually spread globally. And the most recent sample we found was 1987 from Malaysia. So the pathogen was, very, was fit and survived for more than a, a hundred and some years. So we're working on a paper on that now. The other interesting thing you can do with herbarium collections is you can, you can get a record of host and pathogen biodiversity. We found this sample of Anthocerus alicifolia, which is a woody ornamental shrub. It was an Australian plant that was introduced by the British and planted into the botanic garden in Glasnevin, and it became infected with Phytophthora infestans. The sample label shows drawings of sporangia, the pathogen, and we PCR'd Phytophthora infestans out of that in 1840s. So Ornamental shrubs in botanic gardens were alternate hosts. So this is an example of the earliest alternate host we have for the pathogen. And then recently, last year, I was on a sabbatical on a Fulbright Award in, in uh, Italy, and I went up to the UK, went to the Natural History Collections. The Selenium collections there have plant diseases, not the mycological collections, but the Selenium collections. This is a Selenium tuberosum sample that I photographed, and it's full of leaf spots. So you can use herbarium records to study host shifts, biodiversity of pathogens, and then actually just the specimen labels themselves can allow you to get a spatial record of plant um, diseases. So there's a lot, lot of digitization going on right now to digitize these samples, and as that occurs, we're going to be able to use those scanned images to get a sense of, of, of where leaf lesions might be occurring, and then we could strategically sample to, to understand the diversity of different plant diseases besides just Phytophthora infestans. And then I currently have a student, uh, Allison Coomer, who's an AgBioFuse student working on a Phytophthora phylogenetic project with, with me in the lab. She's using a tree-based tool that was developed by Ignacio Carbone, and we've basically taken all the Phytophthora infestans genotypes that are have been reported we've developed this is a, a, a tool that will allow us to query this database of lineages there's metadata indicating what the lineage is what the host is maybe the country of origin and this queryable database will allow us to more quickly identify lineages currently my lab and a lab in Europe are doing most of the global genotyping and identification of lineages now with an open queryable database we'll be able to engage the community of people working on Phytophthora infestans to genotype and identify and upload data into this database so that we can recognize when new outbreak streams are occurring. So uh, in conclusion I just want to say that in order to solve plant disease pandemics we need to use lots of different tools, and I've talked about many of those today, population genomics tools, surveillance tools, deploy host resistance, and then just strengthen phytosanitary standards. We're learning more about host hybridizations and jumps, migrations. We're using population genomics to study global, the global evolution of this pathogen. We've developed this queryable database that will allow us to monitor and collaboratively share data sets. We're using text mining and data analytics to develop outbreak maps. And the, the, the USA blight system and Euroblight, there's a system in Europe, but we're envisioning a global blight disease alert system for genotyping. We're developing sensors that can be input into the surveillance systems. 
And then uh, others are working on developing host resistance and so that it can be deployed on a landscape level. There's work going on at SIP in Africa right now to develop transgenic late blight resistant tomato, tomatoes and potatoes with stacked genes, our genes, so that we can, in areas, resource limited areas where growers don't have access to fungicides, they could plant a transgenic potato and uh, manage this disease effectively. There are confined field trials going on right now in Uganda and in Bangladesh and Indonesia. And then we need improved seed certification programs so that infected plants aren't dispersed in the first place. If we can stop the spread and movement of the pathogen in infected plant material, we'll reduce outbreaks. We need to improve our diagnostic capabilities. And then I do, I continue to do a lot of capacity building and training of scientists broadly through phytophthora diagnostics workshops that I'm running. I wanted to highlight and cite uh, my collaborators in the, in the um, Emerging Plant Disease and Global Food Security Cluster, Dave Rasmussen, who's working uh, with us collaboratively on some of the phylogenetic tools, Rob Scheller, who's doing landscape ecology of emerging pests and pathogens, Chishan's work on, on uh, sensors, and then Anna, and Dor Anna Whitfield and Dort Rotenberg, whose plant virus Vector work is very relevant now in, in this time and age of viral pandemics. And with that, I will take any questions. And I think I'm going to stop sharing so I can see the participant questions. Hey, as I've indicated, um, if you want to use any of the feature, the raise hand feature, or, or really any of the other icons in the chat box, I'll uh, I'll unmute you and um, so you can make a comment, question. We have a couple minutes left. I might have gone over this. The I added in a few more slides. Yeah. Uh, Carlos. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. All right. Hey, Jean. Thanks. Thanks for the seminar. I have a question about one of the charts that you presented about the evolution of the races. When you were talking about that race 22 in 2009, it showed up pretty strongly and then vanished. And that has happened. Looking at the striped rusting wheat in the in California and PNW, we've seen that. We monitor that. And we've seen some races coming strong one year, and then they, they vanished, while there are mm -hmm. others that, of course, they stick and produce the epidemic. Mm -hmm. What's the explanation for that? Well, um, uh, for labelite, we have a, a particular, and actually these are genotypes. They're, they're, they're not races uh, in, in this example that I'm talking about, where they're microsatellite genotypes, but say US1, was predominant for about 10, 15 years. But then when the fungicide mephanoxum was used, it was sensitive to mephanoxum. So I think the fungicide uses, usage affects the race distribution. And then with rust and wheat, wheat cereal diseases, they're continually deploying resistance genes in wheat. And those are genes that are deployed are going to cause shifts in races and lineages. So management practices, the use of most resistance genes, fungicides, and then climate too. Some lineages are more thermotolerant than others, so there's all sorts of factors that can affect why one lineage might survive and not another. I'm going to show you this first with Joanna and Jennifer, Joanna Nelson's son and Jennifer Balsagar. So Joanna, you want to go first maybe? Um, I can't hear. Can, who's, can you speak a little louder? Was that you, Zach? Uh, yeah, I was just uh, call it so that there, Jennifer Baltzigar and Joanna Elson-Son had the question, and I think I'm going to have jo Joanna go first there. Okay. Okay. Um, so this is a question about your detection tools that you're developing. Um, how mm -hmm. often are the plants co-infected, and does that affect the, the detection of specific pathogens in the tools? Yeah, so we are just beginning those experiments as part of our PSI GRIP proposal. We have uh, so far done inoculations with single pathogens on a susceptible tomato host, but what we want to do is inoculate uh, in a series. Um, basically, in Western North Carolina, when tomato, you might see uh, a uh, early blight come in first, and then bacterial diseases, viruses, maybe, maybe not, late blight, late in the season. So you see the succession of pathogens 
So the volatile profiles may change over time. So we're, we're planning on measuring that, and right now I can't really answer your question, uh, you know, what they're going to look like, because we haven't done the co-inoculations yet. The work that we did with um, the three different pathogens were done independently, single inoculations. Jennifer? Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Yeah, um, your presentation was packed with a lot of information. Thank you uh, for sharing that with us. I think my question is actually very similar to the first question, um, in that I found it very surprising that uh, you saw a switch from resistant uh, genotypes to susceptible genotypes. Was that because um, that fungicide had um, stopped being used? Or, um, yeah, can you speak a little bit of fitness yeah. or something? Yeah, US, um, we still see little populations of US-8 in the western part of the country in Washington and Oregon. Uh, and it's resistant to mefenoxum, but for the most part, when resistance occurred uh, in lineages of PMFestans, uh, the company started producing different OMIC-targeted compounds, and so they, many growers will rotate different modes of action, and that has prevented resistance development, and it'll slow resistance development. So mefenoxum is now being used more widely because U.S. 23 is sensitive, but um, so and there are actually pockets where we're now seeing U.S. 23 that's resistant up in New York State. So that's something that has, constant monitoring has to be done to really test the sensitivity of the lineages because they could shift based on what the chemicals are the growers are using. Just the same as insecticide resistance and you know insects, very similar. Yeah, thank you. I did pack in a lot of information, uh, especially because the uh, AgBioFuse cohort, I know, is from across the gamut in the university, and I wanted to cover a lot of bases. Uh, Royden, you should be able to ask your question now. Great, thank you, Jean. Uh, great presentation. So much great work going on. Um, could you expand on maybe some of the dynamics of interdisciplinary uh, uh, work that y'all are doing that that uh, could you know build synergy to the program or that is building synergy? Uh, anyway, I find that very interesting, and I appreciate your answer. Yeah. Um... Well, the, uh, in terms of our work in the cluster, I think the, the diverse group of faculty that we've hired into the cluster is uh, allowing us to ask the kinds of, kinds of questions that we wouldn't have asked five years ago. And the tool sets, the computational tool sets, the technology, the sequencing technology costs have come down. So it's allowing us to really kind of think outside of the box and address some uh, issues that we would not have been able to otherwise, just because we're, uh, we have people from many different disciplines, this, from four different colleges. And, uh, you know, in our PSI project, we're, we have uh, an economist on board to take a look at the cost of sensors and whether the adoption of the technology would be useful for, for growers and, and how much would it cost and, you know, how do we deploy so these sorts of things um, could not be done if we didn't have this diverse group of faculty. And, you know, originally when I proposed this cluster, I, w I was thinking emerging disease in global food security, not plant disease. And now here we sit in a, a day where we're, we're, we're all dealing with the human pandemic that's impacting our lives day to day. And I think about the technologies we're using, you know, some of these plant systems, plant virus systems, they're amenable to test technologies in a lab quickly without harm to humans. Our technologies could be useful in human epidemiology right now. So, you know, I'm thinking more and more broadly about how we can mobilize 
you know, what we what we know about plant disease epidemics to help, you know, lower that curve for human outbreaks. Uh, and, you know, we have collaborators in global health at Duke and, and UNC. I hosted a meeting two years ago on Global Food Security Institute, and we had people from across these areas, animal, plant, human. And I think this is where we're going to need to be working in the future because these, these viruses that are jumping hosts, some of them are off of mammal species that are living on trees. You know, the plant, the animal, and the human diseases, there's interactions that we just were at the tip of the iceberg on understanding. So it's an interesting time to be doing science. Uh, so we're at 1 o'clock, so uh, the, the colloquium uh, is going to finish right now, but I believe Gene has agreed to stay on for kind of a remote uh, Zoom lunch uh, for anybody who's able and has the time to uh, and wants to ask more questions, talk with her about all the materials she was presenting. Um, so I'm going to leave. And so if you, if you want to participate in that, just stay in this uh, Zoom uh, meeting, and um, I'll leave it in the hands of my co-host, uh, Todd, to, to manage that. Part of the, um, part of Thank the you, everyone. Thank you for listening, and uh, have a good rest of the day. Remote applause. Stay on with the students. Yeah, just just so everyone knows, so I'm going to hand your power back to you individually to unmute yourselves. Um, so if you have a question, um, just kind of jump in. As I said, um, this is our version of, of lunch with Gene that we typically would have done after a colloquium, but we're going to be doing it virtually. So um, the power to unmute yourself is in your hands. Um, so please use it uh, sparingly. I hope I get a rain check on lunch. It's interesting. Every state around Pennsylvania is on a um, who's speaking? Can I can't hear. All right, give me it. So we're going to go back to raising your hands again. Um, <laughs> So raise your hand and then um, we'll unmute you as, as we go. Um, there was, Gene, a question in the chat box. So let me see if I can uh, find this again. So the question was, what do you see as value of metagenomic sequencing for surveillance? And also, what is the role of or of endophytes? Unmute. Okay, I'm unmuted. Well, um, you know, I mentioned about this kind of surveillance for pathogen biodiversity. Metagenomic approaches could be used in some of the with some of these historic um, selenium collections to understand the diversity and the landscape level biodiversity of plant diseases on different selenium species, clades, hosts. So that kind of approach could be used with these historic uh, herbarium samples. And right now, you know, we are um, we're we're targeting a specific pathogen, but you know, the metagenomic. There's a whole there's a new journal in APS. It's a uh, phytobiomes, and that phytobiome uh, work to, doing metagenomics to understand endophytes in, in in plants is really uncovering new potential biocontrol agents, understanding the ecology of disease. So um, there's a lot of work going on in that area right now. In terms of surveillance, metagenomics could be used to look for uh, indicators of potential new outbreak strains if, if there was some sort of general, and, and not just strains, but species of pathogens. You know, on rust, we are talking about the different rust, rust uh Races. A paper was published last year where people are using MinIM sequencing and just sequencing the different rust races so they don't have to actually do inoculations now on plants to identify a race. It could, used to take weeks to months to do that, and now with metagenomics, people are understanding um, what the race complexity might look like in a field much more quickly, and a metagenomics approach could be taken there as well. 
Hi, Jin.、Uh, thank you much, very much for your talk. Hi.、Um, so, I was wondering if you could、um, explain a little bit more、um, your experience in the interdisciplinary approach, how、uh, you looked at farmers' adoption of this technology. And also, as、um, an Ag Biofuels Fellow, I would like to hear from you if you have any、um, suggestions or any topics on mind that you think. Uh, are very、uh, futuristic and like that we need to address、um, like in multiple disciplines.